from the opening verses of this psalm that it is a psalm of praise. It is about praising and worshiping God. It opens, if you look back at the text, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre and make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings and with loud shouts. And so when we open this up, it's very obvious this is a, a psalm about praise. And so one of the things that you'll notice about this psalm, if you ever hear a sermon on, on Psalm 33, it will probably be different than this one, okay? And that is just because Psalm 33 is one of the texts that a lot of pastors will go to to get information about how we should worship. And you can see in these opening verses, there is some instruction on how we should worship. And so as pastors throughout the years and theologians have talked about what should worship look like within the context of the local church today, Psalm 33 is instructive because we read things in here about the nature of worship and what is okay to have within worship. For example, there is, there is information in this text about instrumentation. There is a harp and there is a lyre. So we see that these musical instruments are okay. They are, they are part of what the Old Testament uh, Israelites used within worship, and they are here, pastors will point to this to say, see, this is how we know that having a guitar and drums and different things like that is okay, because Psalm 33 talks about using instrumentation in the praise of the Lord. We also see things in here about loud shouts, right, which comes up a couple of different times to the dismay of our Presbyterian brothers, Right? <laughs> And so while we could spend our time in Psalm 33 talking about the instructions that it gives us for how to worship, I want to spend our time this morning looking at what the other part of Psalm 33 is, really the bulk of the psalm, the middle, the meat of the psalm, is really not so much about how we should worship, but why we should worship like that. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the uprights. Play on the musical instruments. Give a shout to the Lord. And so it begs the question, why? Why do we come in and sing praises to the God of the Bible? Why do we do this? Why is it that we praise him? And I want to talk about why this morning, because in my mind, why is a more fundamental question than how. The reason why you're doing something supersedes how you're going to do it, and in fact, it informs how you're going to do it. When you know why you are carrying on some aspect of your work, it really tells you about how you should carry that work out as well. So today, we're going to look at three reasons that the psalmist puts before us about why we should praise God. The three reasons that stand out to me in the text are because of his nature, his power, and his decree. So we'll take them in turn as they appear in the text. His nature, his power, his decree. The first thing that we see, the first thing that the psalmist lifts up and says, this is why you should praise the Lord, is because of his nature. Look back at verses 4 and 5. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. 
the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. So, the psalmist starts listing off some of God's attributes, things that are about his character and his divine nature, and immediately goes to those and says, this is why. This is why we shout and play musical instruments and give thanks to the Lord, because, and the psalmist just starts cracking them off, right? We see all kinds of things in just those two verses, upright, faithful, righteous, just, loving. And so we should worship because these things are beautiful. And we know when we hear these things about the word of the Lord, about his faithfulness, his righteousness, all of these things, they are things that our hearts long for. And we love these attributes about God, his character, who he is, is a key reason in why we worship him. But I want to point out another thing that kind of undergirds these uh, attributes, if you will, another thing that kind of lies almost unexamined in some ways about these attributes, okay? And so, you know, as a everyday kind of Christian, I don't spend a lot of time thinking in this same way, but theologians and church fathers for centuries have thought about the nature of God in ways that doesn't really ring in my mind. But one of the things that is very important when we talk about the nature of who God is, is that yes, he is all of those things. But the thing that we maybe don't think about or talk about very much is the question of, but what if he changed? What if he stopped being upright and faithful and righteous and just and loving? What would that mean for us? And so there is this fundamental thing that kind of lays at the bottom of this, and and praise be to God that God has actually spoken to this in places like James chapter 1, verse 17. James chapter 1, verse 17 says this, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Praise be to God, not only that he is these things, right, but that he will always be those things. The theologians, there's a a term that they use for this, and it's a a fancy vocabulary word, right? And it's called immutability, right? If you read a systematic theology book or if you ever go to seminary, they will talk about the immutability of God. And that's what is being talked about here in James, that, that this goodness and righteousness and faithfulness and justice that we see in God is immutable. It cannot change. And the easy way to think about that is simply this. If the TV is on and it's too loud and you want it to stop, what do you press? Mute. And so when we say that there is an immutable attribute that God has, what we're saying is that it cannot be turned off. There is no way to turn off or to stop God from being any of these things that we just talked about. And so God's immutable attributes, his unstopping, unfailing, uprightness, faithfulness, righteous, justice, and love is a reason that we praise him. Because he was those things, he is those things, he will always be those things. And so we praise him for his nature, who he is at his core. The second thing 
that the psalmist puts before us is God's power. God's power. So look back with me, if you would, at verses 6 through 9. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. So the psalmist tells us about this loving, just, righteous, faithful God. And here's the good news about these different aspects of God and who he is and his character is that they actually play off of one another. And for you and I, it is important that we understand that any one of these things on their own about God would be great, but it would be insufficient. Because we just learned that this God that we worship, that we praise, is immutably good and righteous and faithful and just and all of these things, right? But what if he was weak? What if he was all of those things that he loved us so much and he had our best interest in mind, but he was weak? And he couldn't help. He couldn't save. In Greek mythology, there was a, a God, and this would have been about the time that New Testament Christians were around. You know, the Greeks and the Romans were, were obviously on the scene. And in Greek mythology, there's this God named Atlas. Does anybody know the God Atlas in Greek mythology? And in Greek mythology, Atlas's job is to hold up the world, right? And there are ancient statues and carvings and pictures of Atlas, and you see this, this man, right, with a globe on his back, right, hunched over, doing everything he can to hold the world up. What a weak God. Because contrast that with the God of the Bible that the psalmist tells us spoke all of these things into existence and upholds the world simply by the word of his power. There is no strain, right? There is no great exercise in strength by which he is wearing out or getting tired or barely able to accomplish this. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And so the psalmist actually draws our attention to two different things that help us see the enormity of God, just how big and powerful he actually is. And there are two things that especially in their day would have captured the hearts and the imagination of the people who the psalmist is talking to. The first is the ocean. He says in verse 7 that he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap and puts the deep in storehouses. And for people in this time, the sea is a mysterious place, right? We now have had the opportunity to actually explore the entire globe and span the seas. And we, so we kind of have a good idea of the globe and the map. But in the, and we, when we think about aliens or something coming to get us and the unknown and the terror, we, we actually, in our modern times, talk about outer space, that something would actually come down. But in ancient times, the fear was that these great beasts and this unknown would come up from under the sea. Um, and there was actually a movie uh, not too long ago where this was the reality, where they were these monsters, these aliens had created a, a wormhole underneath the sea, right? And they would come up. And so 
mankind had created these giant robots, right, that would go out and fight against these sea beasts. Does anybody see that? I can't remember the name of the film off the top of my head. But it was, I went and watched it in a theater just so I could see giant robots and giant animals fight each other on a big screen, right? And as I was watching, all I could think was, wow, what an ancient view of the place where there is the mystery and the unknown, the deep sea, right? And God, the psalmist, you know, God's word through the psalmist to the people of this time is, is, listen, that thing that is so vast. And even us now, when we stand at the ocean shore and we look out and all you see is water. The vast array and the unknown of that helps you feel just how small you really are. And then the psalmist says, yeah, you see that water? God picks it, right? He gathers it up and stores it like you were just picking fruit and putting it in a basket. Do you see the power of God? And as modern people, we... We could get in a ship, we could get on a cruise ship now, right, and actually, like, sail the entire ocean. So we may look at that and think, oh, well, like, it's not as scary as they thought it was. It's not as big. Um, Could you imagine plucking up the seas like a piece of fruit and just carrying them in your basket? But even if that were not the case, okay, even if we like, okay, well, the the sea, we kind of get past. The next thing that the psalmist points to even has to capture our hearts, our imaginations, our minds, Because he says to look at the heavens. The heavens were made by the breath of his mouth and all of their hosts. So when the sun goes down on the beach and you look out over the water and you're thinking, if I had a big enough boat, I could sail. But when the sun goes down and you gaze up into the night sky and all you see is vastness, stars that are millions of light years of miles away, then we really feel how small we really are. Because though we could get on a a cruise ship and sail the ocean, there is no rocket big enough. There is nothing that we have made. We still don't have a telescope large enough to explore the vastness of the universe that God created for us. But if you have seen any of the pictures uh, from the Webb telescope that NASA released recently, you see some of the incredible images that come out of this, just how gigantic the universe really is. And that's all we know because that's the biggest telescope we have right now. And the psalmist says that all of that, he spoke it into existence. By the word of his power, he commanded, it's there, and then by the word of his power, not by his straining to hold up the world, but simply by his command, it stands firm. It's not shaken. It exists. And so the psalmist says to us, listen, you have a God who is immutably good. But what's even better than that is that his immutable goodness is combined with immense power. So that God is not simply willing to save us, but unable. No, no, no. His goodness with his power means that he is both willing and able to save his people. Next, we see God's divine decree. If you would, look back with me 
at verses 10 to 17. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom He has chosen as His heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven and sees all the children of man. From where He sits enthroned, He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashioned the hearts of them all observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope of salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. So next, the psalmist points us to the sobering reality that we have to look to this God who is immutably good, who is immensely powerful. But then the good news of that is that he's not just a good, powerful God who, you know, just kind of exists out there and set things in motion and left, right? That's the deist view of God. He just put everything in there and he's gone, right? But what we see here is that God is active in the affairs of the world, that God is immutably good and immensely powerful, and he's got a plan that he is working out to accomplish his purposes for his good, or for our good, the good of his people and his own glory, that these things are working together. He didn't just create the world and hold it in place. He's active in the, in the work of the world. He is making things happen according to his plan and purpose. And so we see that in verse 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. He will accomplish his will. And so we acknowledge other places in scripture where we see that. And we have to agree with places like Proverbs 19.21 that says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And to me, that's really when the psalmist is talking about all of the things, kings and nations and war horses and all of these different things, it really feels to me like the psalmist is trying to draw our attention to the fact that God is good and God is powerful and God is working and the things that we think will save us and the things that we want to see happen in the world may not actually be according to his plan and we may be putting our hope in something that cannot save. To me, that's what verses 16 and 17 really bring out. Because if you live in this day, in this time of the psalmist, who is the most secure person on the face of the earth? It would be the king with the biggest army. They will have the most security of anyone on the face of the earth. And so the psalmist just grabs that analogy and says, hey, you know what people think that this would make them secure. The most secure person on the face of the earth in our day and time would be the king with the great army. And the psalmist says, the king is not saved by his great army, nor the warrior by his great strength. Ask Goliath that at the end of the day, it is the decree and the counsel and the will of the Lord that will stand. 
And he can overcome a great army and great strength. And so the last refrain that we get is, and the war horse, that thing that you hope in that lifts you up out of the battle and gives you extra strength in the middle of a war, false hope of salvation. It's really strong, but it cannot rescue. We're hit with the sobering reality that self-reliance and control is an illusion. We comfort ourselves to think that we have everything together and we have everything we need and we will be secure. In the same way that Jesus warns us in the Gospels that there was a man who had great wealth and who said to himself, I need to build some bigger barns so that I can store up all of these things and then I'll say, oh, rest my soul. You have plenty. You have all that you need, not knowing that at that very hour your soul would be required of you. In our own day, when we talk about the things that make us feel like we're secure, that give us that illusion of control, it may read something like this, that the banker is not saved by their great amount of capital, and the investor is not saved by her great foresight, and that a booming real estate market is a false hope of security. By its great production of wealth, It cannot save. And the activist, the political activist, is not saved by her cause, nor the politician by his social policy. And the ballot box is a false hope of salvation. By its great influence, it cannot save. We must look to the Lord. So Christian, I ask Where is your hope? Is it in the bank account? Is it in social policy and getting the right president elected when it comes to 2024? No, no. The psalmist puts us through these realities. God is immutably good. He is immensely powerful. He is active and working in the world. And therefore, we go to verse 18. So he said, all of those things are out there. And so he says, behold, look, Christian. These things are before you. Behold, look, listen. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. On those who hope, not in kings, not in horses, not in great strength, not in wealth, not in politicians, who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death. For Israel, this reality was something that was known. God God works in multiple ways throughout human history to make himself known that he is the one who will keep their soul from death, who will keep them alive in famine. God not only told them he would do this, he then demonstrated that he would do it, right? God communicates through word, right? Through, we have the scriptures that communicate to us, but then he also communicates through deeds of power, right? And so the Israelites knew it had been declared to them God's goodness in places like Exodus 34, verse 6, when the, the Lord passes before Moses and declares of himself, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, 
forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Rescuing His people. But then they knew it, also not just because of what was declared in Exodus 34, but because of what also happened in the book of Exodus. When they stood at the Red Sea, and there was a sea in front and an army behind, and God showed not only His immutable goodness and love toward the Israelites, but His immense power and His divine plan to part the Red Sea and walk them straight through. They knew the realities because they had experienced it. And so, friends, the Israelites had reason to worship. And we have more. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Speaking of Jesus, says that He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. God's goodness and power and plan come to fruition. They meet their climax in the person and the work of Jesus. Because in Jesus, we see God's goodness and love and care for us that he would send Christ to save us. In Jesus, we see God's immense and divine power when Jesus walks the earth and he does simple things like turning water into wine, but he also says to the seas, that vast ocean array that God can just put into a basket, that Jesus, as the word of God, can walk up to the sea and it knows his voice. The voice that created that sea can say to the sea, hush, be still, and it listens. And he can say to Lazarus, come forth and raise him from the dead. We see God's power on display in Jesus. And we see Jesus fulfilling God's most important divine decree, God's plan to rescue us from our sin. In Christ, it has been accomplished. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 10. I'm going to read these. And as, as I read these verses, I just want you to think about those things. God's goodness and love right? His immutable attributes, his power, and also his plan, his decree, that they all come together in Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1, the apostle Paul says this in verses 3 to 10, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, God's divine decree, his plan, right? That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Psalm 33, we praise God for what he has done with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption. The king is not saved by his great army. The warrior, not by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope of salvation. And in Ephesians 3, we read this about Jesus. In him, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, his goodness, in all wisdom and insight, 
His decree. Making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. The three truths about God that work together, His love for us, His willingness to save us, His immense power, His ability to save us, and a divine plan for how to accomplish that come together in Jesus Christ in order to establish our redemption. And that answers the more fundamental question of why do we praise God? Because of what He has done for us in Christ. It all plays out beautifully. And none so beautiful as that word which is so powerful that God can simply speak the universe into existence and give a command and it stands firm. That same voice in the person and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the voice with that power, uttered the words, It is finished. And so when he spoke that, it was true. And in the same way, he commanded that about our salvation, that it is finished and it will stand firm. And God's immutable goodness. So when it comes to our salvation, we don't hope in wealth or military might. We hope in the strong name of Jesus Christ and him alone. Because there is salvation in no one or nothing else. For there is no other, other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So as we walk through our lives experiencing God's divine decree, his plan as everything unfolds, we do it knowing that at times it may be both sweet and bitter. But it's God's plan. It's God's purpose. And even when we walk through the bitter times, we remember that it is an immutably good and loving God who has immense power that is walking with us through all of those things, letting us endure trials even for a season, for our good and for his glory. And so we declare with the psalmist, verses 20 to 22, that our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. So we pray, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Let's pray. Father, we just declare.